0: Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Happy New Year to everybody. Hope everyone had a good Christmas and uh, is enjoying 2022 so far. I suppose the the good news uh, as we start the year is that uh, for snooker fans, there will be crowds at the Masters as it stands as we record this. Uh, There's no new restrictions being brought in in England, so fans will be able to go to Alexandra Palace uh, this week. Um, However, there are certain uh, boxes you have to tick. You have to either have... Uh, two vaccinations, proof of that, or proof of a negative test within the last twenty-four hours, etc., etc. All those things are on the will Snooker tour website. Check them out if you are going. Be interested to see actually what the crowds are like. I mean, normally in yeah, normal in inverted commas times, you know, they've always been good there, but maybe some people will choose to stay away. And obviously, if you tested positive for COVID, you're going to have to. So, uh, be interesting. Let's hope they are good because it's such a, a great event. Of course, the Masters. And in this podcast, myself and Phil Yates later on. We'll be uh, making our wild predictions about the tournament going through each match and picking a winner of the tournament as well. So that's coming up. But um, a bit of admin first. Thank you for the comments about our special Christmas episode. I did uh, a joint episode with Nip Metcalf and Phil Haig from Talking Snooker. It went on a bit. <laughs> it was three hours. And to be fair, it could have been probably three times as long. Uh, we were high on the hog. Uh, literally, in my case, because I was drinking wine. I'd pull on from the Morningside Arena. But, um well, I say wine. I am not sure we would, <laughs> I am not sure we would actually qualify under strict uh, strict definition. But anyway, uh, we had a good time, and uh, thanks for all the comments. And uh, just one thing, because I've had a few emails about this. I made a wild uh, comment during it, one of many, to be fair, saying, "Well, I gave the impression that the podcast was ending." Now, that's not necessarily the case at all. What I said was, what I, well, what I meant was that uh, as as a landmark, I would like to get to two hundred episodes. Now we're up to I think one hundred eighty seven now, so going into the world championship we'll be around 200 and then i said i would sort of review things because after the world championship there'll probably be a break anyway i'm not saying for a minute that it will end definitely but you know who knows where we'll be in a few months time so uh, but thank you for people who uh, got in uh, contact about that and uh let's uh let's start with uh, an email here from uh, leon tricker now i have to just slightly edit this because you see leon says a couple of unkind things about our dear friends at the World Snooker Tour podcast, but uh, we'll, we'll gloss over that. And uh, he's talking about an episode they did with Sean Murphy. He said, on the podcast, Murphy recounts a story from when he first got on the tour as a 15-year-old. He says he was taken aside by an older player he looked up to, and the older player gave Murphy a talking to about how he had no right to be on the Pro Tour. Understandably, Murphy says this was an unpleasant experience. The story makes Murphy's comments following his defeat to C. jean seem all the more bizarre Sean Murphy would, would make the distinction that he was a pro, whereas C. J. He wasn't. But Murphy had only just turned pro when this incident occurred, and there's a clear similarity between what happened to Murphy, what he said after the defeat to C. J. He, i.e. an older experienced player telling a young player they don't have the right to be competing. I'm sure it'll never be put to Murphy, but I'd be intrigued to know if he sees this as a double standards on his part. Well, thank you, Leon. Um, yeah, I mean, Sean told that story on, on, on this very podcast uh, a few years ago. Um, it's true that he, special dispensation was arranged for him to turn professional. Uh, essentially the season that year started literally in June. I think his birthday's in August. So there was about a month before he turned 16. In those days, there was an age limit, basically, because of tobacco sponsorship. Um, teenagers couldn't play in tobacco events. And he, or, or sorry, s- uh, people under 16 couldn't play in tobacco sponsored events. And he wouldn't have done because the Embassy World Championship by then, um, would have been, you know, obviously, by the time he was 16 So they gave him special dispensation And personally I remember it At the time I, I had no problem with that at all I thought it was common sense really uh, He was a very talented player And were went those on the tour um, Are the two things the same? Well you could argue the, A couple of strings were pulled And, and you could argue that uh, Some of the older players um, You know might have been within their rights To complain I don't agree with that I think they should have Kept their mouths shut um, Here's the thing with Murphy Okay and what he said at the UK Championship I said on the podcast I didn't agree with him But he had the right to voice his opinion about his profession I hope that people don't keep going on about this now It seems like it's become a bit of a stick to beat him with Um, Particularly, you know, if his form dips You can see people kind of having a go about it And I I just think, you know, you're absolutely entitled to disagree with him But this doesn't necessarily have to follow him around for the next five years Um, (laughs) He said what he said People said what they said. As far as I could see, most people seemed to disagree with him. That's absolutely fine. He sort of stuck to his guns. He hasn't really changed his opinion. He doesn't have to. Um, but it doesn't make him a bad person, and it doesn't mean that we have to sort of batter him at every opportunity. Uh, so there we are. Now, James One has written... And this is uh, cutting to the heart of the matter here. He says, I was re-watching the classic 2001 Masters final between Paul Hunter and Fergal O'Brien on YouTube. That's Fergal's first mention of the year. Uh, and he said, I couldn't take my eyes off the background. Flowers, flowers everywhere. It was like they were playing inside the Sheffield Winter Gardens and I was expecting Hazel Irvin to suddenly appear from behind a large tree. I'd forgotten that flowers had always been a feature in the big televised snooker events. What happened to them? When did they get rid of the flowers and Why? Well, see, we're hitting the ground running, aren't we, in this year with the with the big issues? Well, um, yeah, I mean, they were. It, it was a feature, I suppose. Fashion's changed. Um, it, it may not have helped that uh, <laughs> Stephen Hendry famously is, is frightened of wasps, got a phobia about wasps. And one year at the Masters, a wasp flew out of the flowers and sort of came towards him, and he he was about to scarper. Uh, he was about he was about to do a runner from the arena. Um, certainly, if you look back at the old old snooker, you see you see a lot of. Uh, a lot of, uh, well, what's the word? Herbage, I suppose. No, not herbage. That's not the word at all, is it? Uh, flowers. So, yeah, let's just let's use that word. Uh, <laughs> flowers, yes. And, um, but at some point, someone decided, some marketing genius, no doubt, decided they were probably what it is. They were probably covering up or threatening to cover up the sponsors, you know, logos and so on. Uh, that's, that's usually what, the main thing about the sets. Um, yes, it's, it's one for nostalgics, but I can't say personally I particularly miss them. Chris Thornley, he says, I'd love your thoughts regarding the future of snooker with the predicted Chinese influence beginning to take hold. There are so many clubs that are closed in the UK. I don't think there are many homegrown new talents ready to step up. Do you think interest in the sport in the UK will continue with the possible majority of the 128 players being based overseas? Well, Chris, I think interest will continue in terms of people wanting to watch snooker um, on television and live. There's no been no um, sort of... Uh, Diminution of that at all um, In recent times Quite the opposite actually Viewing figures is superb And ticket sales I mean the pandemic Has affected them obviously But in general You know there's a lot of tournaments in the UK And you know It's supply and demand If if people want to come Then the the events will be put on In terms of playing opportunities They have decreased Definitely I mean clubs we we know Have closed down um, But there's also been A cultural shift um, And you know You speak to some of The older players And they question whether Sort of the youngsters Kind of Have the have the sort of attitude that they want to commit themselves to being in a club six hours a day practicing when they could be doing other things. Can they put their phone away even for that long? You know, it's all these sorts of things. Um, in terms of the Chinese influence, of course, they had huge investment um, off the back of Ding Junhui's initial success. That is paying off massively now, of course. Bing Tao, Xiao Jing Tong, uh, and several others come into the fore as well. Um, but listen, it's not, a, it's not a British game exclusively. Maybe it should be. Uh, More international, and maybe, you know, Britain has to accept that its best days are behind it, and there's a whole world out there, and the sport can go off and, and conquer new markets. It would be, I guess, disappointing for the traditional base in Britain if tournament started to disappear, and, you know, there were fewer British players, but that's kind of the price of success, isn't it? You know, it doesn't belong to Britain, the sport, it belongs to the world. I think the key thing is, in terms of the future of the professional circuit, if you like, is what happens after Barry. And I don't mean his retirement, which doesn't really seem to be a retirement. I mean, when he's literally no longer involved, what happens to the game then? Uh, Does Eddie Hearn, his son, you know, he was not necessarily steeped in snooker like Barry. Does he, if he receives a a big offer from, say, China or Saudi Arabia or whatever to take it over, does he succumb to that? We don't know. We don't know. Um, It'll be interesting, I guess, in the next 10 years or so to find out. But um, there is... A certain shift, but there's still a lot of British players um, who are, you know, obviously still winning tournaments. The next generation, where they're coming from, I mean, there are, and the amateur circuit, you know, it is building up again. And there are tournaments and the, there are youngsters playing, but we don't have the volume, we don't have the numbers that we once did. So whether someone exceptional will come through the pack from the UK, it possibly will happen, we don't know. Uh, there's this young lad, Stan Moody, who seems to be doing really well. We'll see how he develops um, but as I say, it's not, it's not a British game exclusively. And I think it's healthy for any sport to have a widespread, um, number of international players on the circuit. And, you know, that, that is kind of starting to happen, albeit dominated by China. But obviously we've got Luca, Brissell from Belgium and so on. Um, and in, in coming years, if, if the gospel is spread more, we may well see the, the fruits of the, uh, increased streaming. So snooker 's is going to more countries. That should, Stimulate participation. We've already got, of course, a couple of players from, from Iran. Um, be interesting, but it's hard to call right now exactly how the circuit will change in 10 years' time, how, what it will look like. But I guess we'll have to find out. Maybe the podcast will still be going then. Who knows? We'll be up to episode... Well, I dread to think how many, actually. Now then, if you've seen the film Sliding Doors, this will interest you, I think, this email from Jonathan Ford. He says, I'm just sending you an email to express my thanks for a brilliant Christmas bumper three-hour podcast. I really enjoyed listening and loved the mashup with Talking Snooker, who we also listen to on a regular basis. We're officially a mashup. I was thinking, actually, uh, Jonathan, it was more like McBusted, um, McFly and Busted. Hopefully I would be McFly in that, in that uh, scenario. Anyway, he continues, it was a real Christmas surprise when I started playing it, and it was all very insightful and interesting. While listening, you explained how you first got into snooker and the junior press officer job you successfully got with the WPBSA. I realised it was the role I also applied for. Alas, it went to a better person than yourself, but it took me back to the interview with Bruce Beckett in 1998 at Bristol. I look back on that period of time in the game and do think I had a lucky escape, bearing in mind how poisonous the atmosphere was in the WPBSA at the time, with all the political wrangling. I do think it would have put me off enjoying the sport I love so much had I experienced it, and full credit to you for lasting 18 months in the role. It must have been challenging for you, but also a real learning curve as well. Or maybe it wasn't as bad as I imagine it might have been. Bearing in mind up to there, there were quite a few... Bearing in mind you were there for quite a while and I only had Clive Everton's snooker scene accounts to go from. Anyway, like you, I really hope the China circuit gets back up and running for 2022. The game really needs it in terms of the global development. You can't help think there is an element of all the eggs in one basket with the China tournaments with regards to overseas development, but I guess this is where the commercial market and demand is, so who am I to question it? Xiao Jing Tong's win in the UK was certainly very important to keep interest alive in the game in the Far East, especially with Ding looking like a fading force now. Yan Bing victory in the Masters was also important, and the steady trickle of wins by Chinese players and consistent development of them up the rankings is key, I feel, in terms of overseas development and progress. Anyway, happy Christmas and all the best for 2022. Please keep up the great work. Your thoughts and the pins in the game are always really interesting. Well, thank you, Jonathan. That's very kind. Uh, I was I was thinking Jonathan might end by saying he'd become a millionaire in in another industry there, but he, thankfully he didn't. He may have done, I don't know, but he's left that out. But uh, yeah, I mean, picking up on the point about China, it is important to get back there. It's important for the uh, for the players as well. You know, the, the the ranking list. I think I mentioned this before has been distorted by the fact that the points from the Chinese events have come off, and we don't have those big money events, you know, currently to play. in at the moment. Um, the earliest we'll be back in China will be sort of August, September for the Shanghai Masters. That's the plan. That will be an invitation event. So in terms of a world ranking event, I guess it's going to be possibly, you know, a year's time before we're back there. I think uh, a lot depends on how the Winter Olympics goes in China uh, coming up in February, but also how the pandemic goes. You know, we don't know. We don't know is the, is the truth, but hopefully, as you say, we will be back there soon. Now, Kostas writes from Greece. I'm a Ronnie fan from Greece, and I love your podcast. I think you're doing fantastic work. Thank you, Costas. He says, I have a question. Can you tell me, please, what's the total number of professional titles, not including team titles, that Ronnie, Hendry and Davis have each won? I think Davis has 81, Ronnie 72, Hendry 71. Is that correct? I'm looking forward to your podcast of the new year. Wish you all the best of the holidays. Happy New Year. Thank you, Costas. Well, this is a thorny issue um, because, well, everyone knows what a ranking event is because it's assigned ranking points. Um, So we know how many they've won uh, O'Sullivan 38 Henry 36 Davis 28 Within that It's a little bit complex Because of course when Steve started Steve Davis There was only one ranking event Until 1982 The only ranking event was the World Championship (laughs) So think of all the tournaments he won around that period That didn't count towards the rankings If they had done Who knows how many he would have Probably over 40 And if there was many tournaments in Hendry's heyday, as there are now, he'd probably be over 50. Uh, Solomon would certainly have more as well. So, But you can only go on what's actually happened. And what's actually happened is that's how many ranking events they've won. Invitation events, there are some clearly defined ones. The Masters, the old Irish Masters, Champion of Champions, the Premier League, all those sort of events, very clearly established tournaments. But if you look down the list of events that these players have won, there are some tournaments that you have to question, is that a tournament or is that an exhibition? Um, a four-man event Is that really a tournament Or is that just a Sort of glorified exhibition How seriously Did the players take it Some of those early trips abroad That Matrim Under Barry Ern Undertook Were really important In terms of the Global spread of the game But were they really How many of those Were really proper tournaments As such um, There's an argument You just count everything Where someone's got a trophy At the end of it um, But you know, us statisticians have to kind of decide. And I went through the list. I was interested in this question because we never really hear about total titles; we just hear about ranking titles. But I was interested in it, and I looked down the list, and my figures slightly vary from yours. I've I made a couple of decisions about what I would count. There was a thing called the Centen- Centenary Challenge, where Hendry beat Davis, but it was just the two of them playing a series of matches. It was just they were just exhibitions that they called a you know they gave an overall name. But to me, that's not a tournament. Um, So I can only go on what I... And I've gone through this quite carefully. I can only go on what I believe the figures are. And the figures, as far as I'm concerned, are this. Steve Davis, 83 professional titles. This is not including team or doubles. It's just individual. And it has to be snooker, not variants. Okay. So Steve Davis, 83 titles. Stephen Hendry, 73 titles. Ronnie O'Sullivan, 74 titles. So O'Sullivan, with that World Grand Prix on my list, has gone ahead of Hendry. Now, there'll be people, I'm sure... Screaming at their uh, listening devices Saying well you you know You haven't counted this You haven't counted that I'm just going on what I've Using my judgement What I feel are torments Rather than exhibitions And those are the figures I've got Tells you how many events Steve Davis actually played in Never mind one But as I say Had there been You know Here's the thing Okay next week It's the 40th anniversary Of the first ever Maximum Made by Steve Davis At the Lada Classic 1982 And That was a piece of history obviously, that Steve Davis will always have. But what he will also have, in my opinion, is more than any other person in the history of the sport, he made the professional circuit what it is now. He brought a sort of respectability to snooker, which brought middle-class audiences, which brought sponsorship, which brought money, which brought television and attention. It was a nice sport to be involved in, particularly in the 80s when football in Britain was associated with hooliganism. Snooker was... A family sport, and Steve Davis represented that. He was clean cut, he was the talisman. Um, So the the way the circuit is developed is largely down to him. And I I guess if he had come into the game at a later date, or if the circuit had developed at an earlier time, he would have won more tournaments. But he still, whatever list you go off, he still won more than anyone else in the game's history. That's just a fact. Now, Ryan Freeman was at the World Grand Prix um, in Coventry. He says, uh, and this is his first snooker event he's attended. And he said, he said the Saturday evening semi-final and Sunday final sessions were the snooks, first snooker events I've ever attended live. I just want to say how enjoyable it was. Being there live and seeing the whole operation behind the camera, so to speak, was a great experience. One I hope to do many times more. It does help when you see your favourite player, Ronnie O'Sullivan, prevail and turn, on the st- and turn on the style a bit in the end as well. Secondly, I just have a question regarding Ronnie and the final. How much of a correlation do you think there is between his last tournament win and now this one being played in front of crowds? With those five losses last season all being played behind closed doors, obviously I'm not saying that was the only reason he lost, but I feel the spark from the crowd, especially in quite a pro-Ronnie crowd, as it was on Sunday, really spurred him on to get the win in the end. What are your thoughts on this? Thank you, Ryan. First, I'm glad you enjoyed your first trip to the snooker and uh, glad to hear you'll be going back again. I think there's something in that, actually, what you say about Ronnie. Um, in in as much as I saw him before a few of those finals, and I've got to say, he did seem a little bit flat. I mean, before the Scottish Open final with Mark Selby, well, it, it was actually before the second session. He was already way behind. But um about ten minutes before the final session, he was in the hotel reception, just arranging where he could leave his bag <laughs> with the sort of concierge. You know, that's not what you do ten minutes before a final session. I think there was definitely a kind of... <sighs> A lack of intensity maybe last season. Now, he he was outplayed by some great players. So, um, you know, Higgins and Neil Robertson Selby, for example. And Jordan Brown deserved the win. Judd Trump deserved the win in the Northern Ireland. So, you know, he was beaten by good players. But I think it was different. I think the crowd did make a difference in that World Grand Prix final. Uh, They did get on his side when he got the momentum and started to play really well. You noticed a sort of of shift in the room. Um, But... On the other side of it We'll never actually know Maybe he would have lost Those five finals In front of crowds Maybe he wouldn't have Got to the finals Who knows We we don't know the, It has to be said Most of that world championship That he won There were no crowds So he got to the final Largely Without anybody watching Finally before we get Into the chat with Phil Yates i have had a couple of Questions Same thing Aaron Power uh, And also uh, As usual This was prepared really well Uh Oh, yeah, James Howard. Both asked about whether. He said they both enjoyed the the Talking Snooker podcast and looking forward to the podcast this year. And James Howard says, Since listening to your podcast, I've been interested to know if you and the other guys actually play. And if so, what's the standard like? Are there any decent players on the media side? I remember Nick and Phil mentioning they play together now and again and would love to know. Also, have you ever had a game with Neil Folds? And Aaron Power, again, the same thing. Uh, What is your snooker history as a player? Sure, you've gained a lot of playing knowledge from the sheer amount of watching the game. You must have tried to replicate it yourself. Well, the the answer to both is I haven't played snooker personally. I think for about twenty years, it's the last thing I would want to do <laughs> at the end of a day. When you've watched the pe- the best people in the world doing something, it would be rather like going to see Frank Sinatra uh, in concert and then thinking, you know what I'm going to do tonight? I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to go down to karaoke, show people how it's really done. No, I I'm, I, I used to play a lot when I was young. Um, I didn't get to a great standard, but you know I played. And, and here's the thing: you can just play for fun. It doesn't have to. You don't. Not everyone has to be world champion. It's a social thing. Um, it's enjoyable most of the time. Uh, Nick and Phil's match didn't sound that enjoyable from their from their reports of it. But standard wise, anyway. But um, but in terms of on the media side, they used to years ago. actually before my time. But Phil was a decent player. Phil Yates was a league player. And he used to have a media uh, competition and, you know, he was quite hopeful of success in it. But Geet Sethi um, came over to write for the Hindu newspaper in India. And Geet, of course, was world billiard's champion and also he was a snooker professional. He made a 147. Um, so Geet Sethi, as a member of the press, was obviously eligible to play in this media tournament and obviously cleaned up. Of course he did. He wasn't handicapped. Um, so that kind of put an end to it. Um, the The overalls, I mean, I think... All the regular snooker press i 've met have been snooker enthusiasts and certainly have enjoyed playing. I think you have to be an enthusiast to spend the time uh, trying to you know promote the sport and, and, and following the circuit round so all the guys over the years um, have have had interest in it. Clive Everton was a professional um he got to i think number forty seven forty eight in the world um, although I think Clive would accept at that time you know the world number forty eight is not the World War 48 now in terms of standard. He was a fine billiards player as well. Um, but uh, in, in general, I think people have sort of come into the sport from having played socially, enjoyed it, accepted they're not going to be world beaters, want to be involved in other ways. It's a bit like the referees, actually. Um, yeah, there, there hasn't been a media event for a while, mainly because <laughs> there's not really that much of a regular media now for snooker. I know a couple of couple of the guys on the uh, World snooker, uh, snooker Tour media team are quite serious players actually um, Pretty good So uh, again they've sort of come into it With that enthusiasm behind them And they've found their little uh, their little place in the whole thing Anyway uh, but the, thank you for all your emails um, uh, I, I want to mention Matt Tresco now Now Matt Tresco you may remember in the summer Sent me the Masters Almanac And this is free uh, to download uh, Mastersalmanac.blogspot.com um, Is where you need to go Mastersalmanac.blogspot I'll try it I'll edit this out, it'll be fine. Mastersalmanac.blogspot.com And it's free, and it's like the Crucible Almanac that Chris Downer does, but on the Masters. Fantastic. Over 100 pages, results, he's updated it. So thank you, Matt, for getting in contact. Um, It's fantastic. I can't say any more than that, really. It's brilliant, and it'll be a good resource for anyone who wants to sort of follow things uh, next week. And uh, that's what's known in the media as a segue into our chat about the Masters. So you can hear me now talking about the Torment. With Phil Yates. Now I should explain uh, that uh, you may be able again to hear a bit of noise in the background. That is uh, the uh, our good friends, the Leicester Riders. Uh, pr- uh, not practicing. What's the word? Uh, yeah, preparing. Training. 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 Um, the Masters, Phil. Uh, one of Snooker's oldest events. Where does it stand now? Do you think, in terms of the uh, the sort of the, the the pecking
1: order? Well, for me, I think it's still undoubtedly number two. They say the UK Championship, but I just don't agree with that. Especially since the UK was reduced from 17 frames to 11 frames. I think that the Masters now is definitely number two, although it does have, and I think it will have in the years to come, stiff competition from the Tour Championship, which is gaining traction all the time. But right now, you have to say it is number two behind the World Championship. It's a great slot as well, first tournament of the year, you
0: know, people getting over the sort of Christmas blues. January is, is not, it can be a depressing month, it's cold, it's, you know, no one's got any money, but it's one of those, a bit like the darts we've just seen over the Christmas period, it's one of those things you kind of look forward to, well certainly obviously snooker fans do, but in general it's a, it's a big event,
1: a big sporting event. It's a big event, it started off in 1975 with that phenomenal re-spotted black finish, and you just knew even then it was going to be something special, and here we are all those years later. I think what really has reinvigorated the tournament, when it was held at Wembley Conference Centre, that was absolutely tremendous. Then, unluckily, the the venue was knocked down and we had to go to Wembley Arena, which didn't work in hindsight. Going to Alexandra Palace, that's been the, the shot in the arm that the tournament's needed. And I think now it really is, as you say, one of the highlights of the calendar.
0: Full, mar- full marks for shot in the arm there, because that's, to- that's a topical reference. Um, we should, we should just before we get into it, we should credit as well, of course, Clive, Clive Everton, uh, who essentially was part of the, the reason the trauma happened uh, back in the 1970s. He was managing Jonah Barrington, the squash player, and he was he had sponsorship from an account run by Peter West and Patrick Nally, um, and they, they had a relationship with Gallagher Tobacco, and they had a meeting with Clive and... They said to him, You know, this should go well. Have you got any ideas for where basically we
1: could spend our money or our clients' money? And he came up with the Masters effectively. Yeah, well, of course, 1975, I think that's pertinent because the rankings that we talk about so voluminously these days didn't begin until 1976. So it wasn't a case of ranking events then dominating the scene. I think we went through a period in snooker where we had a lot and a lot of invitation events. The Masters are always the best one of them. But those invitation events have sort of dried up. Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons why we enjoy this so much. It is the cream of the crop. And as you say, I think Clive's idea was inspired. It's been proved it's passed the test of time. Well, let's sound the clacks and every match is like a final. That's what we're going to hear plenty
0: of. But it's true. I mean, even just looking at the top half here, it's absolutely brutal, actually. I mean, no easy matches, I agree. But the top half is brutal. We're going to go down the draw in draw order. Yambing Tower is the defending champion. He's actually going to start on Sunday against Mark Williams. That's sort of becoming a tradition. It's not always been the case that defending champ starts at the Masters. But he's going to um, be interesting to see how he gets on. Of course, he won it, obviously, as we know, behind closed doors. Um, He's never played, I mean, that was his first appearance in the Masters, so he's never played at Alexander Palace before. Uh, he's, he's getting over that visit from Rob Walker as well to his house. If you've, seen, if you've seen that on the, on the World Snooker, uh, YouTube channel, that's an extraordinary thing. It's like any great work of art, like that. The more times you watch it, the more, the more you see. Um, and, and Rob's enthusiasm, I mean, we're, we're grizzled cynics here, but Rob, to, to find the level of enthusiasm he did for that carpet in Jan's house was extraordinary. But that, but that, we'll leave that to one side. Um, an interesting one, I mean, Mark never seems to kind of be in form, but, you know, he's won two tournaments in the last year.
1: I think he could definitely win that match. Let's not forget that Jan Bingtao might well have become the youngest ever ranking event winner, had it not been for Mark Williams. Um, I think he's got a really good chance, the the old Welsh veteran there. Having said that, Jan Bingtao, the way he played in the Masters last year, the way he fought... And the way he held himself together in extreme pressure. He didn't win any match easily. He won three 6 5s and then the final was a, a brutal affair. I think you've got to make, he had a slight favourite, but I would not discount Williams' chances at all. He played,
0: yeah, I think he played the most ever frames in the Masters. He played all but one frame because the final was 10 8. Um, certainly deserved it and proved his mettle under pressure. And it, um, listen, lots of top players won tournaments behind closed doors, so that. that that you can't say that was the reason he won it, but it, it's, it is different in front of a crowd. Um, is, what, what sort of fact do you think that is? Because he's not actually played that many
1: one-table one tournaments, really, has he, Jan victor No, he hasn't, no. I think with him, his greatest asset is the fact that he doesn't seem to be bothered by his opponent, or indeed his surroundings, or indeed the circumstances of the match. He's unconventional. His shot choices are unconventional. But having said that, while it gets into the skin, that of a lot of players, I don't think it will Williams because he's exactly the same. Yeah, and we talk about,
0: I mean, who's been the dominant player the last three years, Judge Trump? Well, since Trump won his last ranking event, Mark's won two. Um, okay, the Pro Series was below the radar. British Open, you know, it was a tough event to win with all those short matches. Prediction then, Phil, who's going to win that match? I'm going to say, uh, this is one of my outsiders, I'm going to say Mark Williams 6-4. OK, well, I'm going to go for Mark as well. And I've got no real basis other than just, I think, experience counts for a lot. And also, if I mean, Yan Tao is very good at making things tough, but Mark can respond to that. Mark Williams doesn't mind if frames are bad. <laughs> he'll, he'll play any frame in the world, and he's got all the naus and tablecraft. And, you know, I, I, Yan Tao I suspect, will start favourite there, but I'm also going to go for Mark Williams. Now, the next one, you know, we talk about great matches in the first round. This could be the standout, because it's John Higgins against Zhao Tong. I mean, talk about... A clash of generations John Higgins is breaking a record 27 appearances to the Masters That's more than anyone else And they're all consecutive
1: And Zhao's making his first appearance But of course he goes there As UK champion Well we're doing this The night after Zhao Zintong won Group 3 In the Championship League I spoke to him afterwards And all he could think about was The Masters I'm waiting for the Masters I'm looking forward to getting down there Clearly he understands what a big deal it is For John Higgins I think it's a big deal as well Zhao's route to the UK title went through John Higgins. Higgins led 5-3 in a best-of-11 frame match, which this will be. Zhao won 6-5 and then went from strength to strength after that. I think Higgins will really be putting 100% into it. But you have to say, in relation to all of the other big tournaments, his record at the Masters isn't the best, although it's still good. And I must say this, and I don't want to get involved in hype or getting on a bandwagon here, but... Zhao is a special player. Really, really special. And if he trains on, well, the sky's the limit for him.
0: And I think also the crowd will get behind him if he starts to knock them in, you know, because he plays that sort of Judd Trump natural game, doesn't he? Jack Lazowski game. Um, and he's one at tournament. He's the new face, isn't he? And, and, and people like new players. They like Higgins as well, but they've seen plenty of him down the years. It's his style of play that makes him attractive.
1: Very much so, very much so. The way he played in this Group 3 here at the Championship League, he, he won all of his matches in the round-robin phase, so six out of six, and then also um, his semi-final and final so stylishly reached 100 centuries in his professional career. You know, I, I really did doubt at one point, maybe a year, 18 months ago, whether Jair was going to fulfil his potential. Now, I'm not thinking that at all. What I'm thinking is what his potential could be. And as I said before, I think it could be boundless if he continues to play like this. Because the thing is, Dave, as you know, professional snooker takes a lot out of you mentally, not particularly physically, but mentally. But he plays with such nonchalance and insouciance that, you know, you get to a point where you think he doesn't take anything out of himself at all. He could play all day and it wouldn't be a problem. And I think that's what makes him very well equipped for the World Championship, because he's going to be there. And I think it could be the case for the Masters as well. I think he'll go down there and thoroughly enjoy himself. You mentioned Higgins. My theory, I mean, he's won it twice, which is most people would say
0: is a good record. But he's lost, I think, 13 first rounds. I'll just check that for you. But um, my theory is he's always traditionally, I think, enjoyed a good Christmas, John. You know, he's a family man. You know, he enjoys himself as he's entitled to with his family. But, of course, there has been a lifestyle change where he's sworn off all the all the food and everything and the drink. Um, whether that makes a difference, I don't know. He'll be on his guard, for sure. But, let's be honest, he's had a good season in all the finals he's been in. So, I guess the question is, can Zhao take the form he's shown here in a sort of below-the-radar event onto the big stage? He's never played there
1: either, so... One advantage Higgins has got is his experience. Yes, and also we have to remember that when he was thrown into the spotlight again as the UK champion at the World Grand Prix, he didn't qualify for the Scottish Open, so he wasn't there. Mm. So he won the UK championship, then went straight to the World Grand Prix. Big things were being made of it, and he lost in the first round to Martin Gould. So maybe when he gets down to the Masters, he will tighten up somewhat. And of course, he doesn't have the, the tactical knowledge and the tactical brilliance of, of John Higgins. So, although Zhao, at his best, can bamboozle anyone, I would just give Higgins the edge there. Okay, so you're going for John Higgins?
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm going to go for Zhao. I, I just get the feeling I think he'll enjoy himself there, and you know it's a big pressure event. Sometimes the top players go there, and they you can see they feel the pressure. I just think he'll enjoy, it, as Yan Tao did last year, albeit in different circumstances. Now then, uh, Neil Robertson is a former winner. He's played Anthony McGill. He's only played it once. McGill. He lost to Higgins uh, four years ago now. Because um, Robertson had that near miss at the World Grand Prix. Um, again, it hasn't been his best tournament He hasn't won it. He hasn't been his best tournament. Again, maybe the new year. He goes to Norway every new year with his family, which is which is great. Um, there's a vid- video we put up of him going out and doing a sort of um, starfish in the snow in Norway in his basically in his underpants. But anyway, that's it. Uh, That's online if you want to check that out. Uh, Rob Walker was not involved in that one, I'm I'm glad to say.
1: But anyway, uh, Robertson v McGill. (laughs) Well, I'm still getting over (laughs) all your repeated mentions of poor old Rob Walker. To be honest, though, it it is catching because yesterday in commentary for the Championship League, I actually introduced the referee, Rob Spencer, as Rob Walker. And, of course, Mm -hmm. that went viral as well. So I think we've got uh, Rob Walker on the mind. For me, and this is no um, slight on Anthony McGill, I just get the feeling with Neil Robertson that he's lightly raced this year. He's not had a lot of snookers, so he's going to be fresh and raring to go. And I think he'll be desperate to make amends for losing the World Grand Prix final to Ronnie O'Sullivan. And I mean losing the final. Yes, Ronnie played very well at the end, but early on, Robertson had so many chances to build a decisive lead and didn't take them. I think he'll be smarting from that. I think it'll be a good thing for him going to the Masters. I think it will give him an extra degree of motivation. And I would make him one of the, the strong candidates to, to reach the quarterfinals.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think we haven't got much Masters form for Anthony McGill to go on. But, you know, he's always enjoyed the crucible, that high pressure there. Um, I can't see Pat Robertson personally, though, and I agree with you. Uh, we move on to complete a, a brutal top half. And this is a match that a lot of people will look forward to, certainly if you've got a ticket at Alexandra Palace, Ronnie O'Sullivan against Jack Buzowski. That'll be uh, not, a,
1: not a slow match. Well, Jack Lazarski for me, is in exactly the same mould as Zhao Zintong, with one very notable exception. Zhao now has that ranking title. Jack is still waiting, which, to be honest, given his ability, I find extraordinary. Down at the Masters, it's a completely different animal to any other tournament when you're playing Ronnie O'Sullivan. Wherever you're playing O'Sullivan, from Beijing to Bangkok to Bournemouth, it is always difficult because you're playing the crowd as well as him. At the Masters, you're playing... A very big crowd who are predominantly in his corner. He's done so well at the event over the years. And I think Jack might just wilt because of that intimidation factor. Well, here's the thing about Ronnie, Okay, So he's played in the Masters
0: 26 times. And he's been in the final 13 times. So half the times he's played there, he's got to the final. He's won it seven times. Weirdly, he didn't play two years. He didn't play. He was one year he didn't play the whole season until the Crucible. And then a couple of years ago, just didn't, didn't play in it for whatever reason. Um, for me, this all comes down to one very simple thing. And it's not what we think or what anyone else thinks. It's does Jack Lazarski believe he can beat him? If he doesn't, he won't. Um... I think confidence has been an issue with him. It's a big match, you know, there's no table three involved, there's no sort of hiding away. You're centre stage, you're playing Ronnie O'Sullivan in London, one of the biggest tournaments in the sport. I think the early frames are going to be so important. If he doesn't settle early, that'll be over quickly for me.
1: Yes, and also we must take into consideration the confidence boost that Ronnie must have gained from winning the World Grand Prix, and especially the way he did it late on with that very typical burst of brilliance. So, if he carries that on over into the new year, I think um, it could be a really good tournament for him. You know, he's produced so many great performances at the Masters, both in terms of winning titles, grit, beating other top players. What I recall was a first-round match, actually, when he played Ricky Walden. He was absolutely sensational. And when O'Sullivan produces form like that, well, he wins. Simple as that.
0: Yeah, so I'm guessing from what you're saying that you're going for Ronnie.
1: I am. I mean, I'm a massive Jack Lazowski fan. And I think it's almost inevitable that he'll win something eventually, but maybe not this one. It should be
0: said to be strictly, um, you know, accurate. Of course, he's not in the top 16 at the moment. Now, a lot of people feel Luca Purcell, you know, the the cutoff should have been after the World Grand Prix and Luca Purcell should be in it. That's nothing against Jack. He enhances that event, Jack Lazowski. He's a popular player with fans. It's
1: he's, he's not his problem, how it's all worked out. It's worked out that way. Shame Luca's not there, though. It's an absolute shame. I'm, I'm glad you said it's not Jack's problem. Of course it isn't. He qualified as the, the rules were laid down. But the whole thing just needs a real looking at. And I'll tell you why. You've got the Masters there. The 16 players in the Masters are determined five weeks before a ball is struck. Now, the reason they do that is because the BBC want to do the draw during the UK Championship Final. And I can fully understand it. It means that people know when people are playing at Alexandra Palace. It enhances ticket sales. Great. All of that is commercially logical. But then you've got the World Grand Prix. So the qualifying for that is literally hours before it starts. The Scottish Open counted. So we didn't really know the line or who was playing who until very late on. Now, I'm a great believer in consistency. If you're going to have that draw for the Masters five weeks in advance, which I think is a good thing, you've also got over the cut-off points for the Kazoo Series events a little earlier as well. Yeah, I'm going to slightly <coughs> disagree. I think the cut-off should be the tournament before. I think not, that's the top
0: 16 then. Um, and I think Luca Brissett should be in it. But like I say, not Jack's problem. And I really look forward to that match. That's on... Tuesday afternoon now the, that, we go into the bottom half and I said the top off was
1: brutal but actually what about this match should Trump Mark Allen first round <laughs> well I mean they've played some terrific matches over the years their UK championship final when Trump led by a distance eventually won 10-8 that was one of the great UK finals for me and let's put it this way if they're both on form that is going to be one of two things it's going to be close and it's going to be quick I would just Fancy Trump slightly, but Mark Allen at his best is far better than people think. And the other great thing with Mark Allen is he's got a wonderful, wonderful temperament. I think he could deal with it. He's won the Masters before, of course. Why on again? He has won it. He's not won a match, you know, since he
0: won it. So that's, he's lost in the first round three, three years running. Uh, Trump, he has this sort of thing, people on his back that. He's not winning the right tournaments. Apparently, if you win six events, it's not good enough. You have to win a certain number. Of course, he's won all three of the so-called Triple Crown um, and plenty more besides. But I guess he will feel, I think, for his own legacy, if you like, he does have to start winning more of these sort of tournaments. But it's, it's
1: not easy, is it? I mean, it's harder than ever to win the Masters. He's got people on his back. Just utterly ridiculous for not winning the right tournaments. Now, let's remember... The the days just after Mark Selby won his fourth world title this year, he had people on his back for winning it the way he did. <laughs> people will be on your back whatever you do. Judd is quite right to dismiss them and say, look, every tournament's important. That's the way I treat it. It's the number of tournaments you win. You know, obviously he wants to win the big ones, if only from a financial and legacy standpoint. But he will win the big ones again. Of course he will. He's just too good not to. So, who wins is the question. I mean, I I find this very tough to call, actually. Well, I'm not going to say who wins, because I've got no idea. I think it's a complete 50-50. You are going to say, because that's what we're doing. Uh, Okay. well, what I will say, my my (laughs) real prediction is going to be, I think that's a a prime candidate, if you like, to have a a score bet for a 6-5. If I've got to go down on one side or the other, I would say Trump. I'm just going to go Alan, but again, 6-5 either way, I think, is not a bad
0: match to look forward to, for sure. Um... Kyron Wilson-Sheart Bingham is the next one. Bingham, of course, won at the Ali Palace two years ago, the last time there was a crowd. And that was a perfect example of how the sort of form book doesn't really, really always make that much difference. It's just who can actually last the week there. And it's interesting, actually, that final, he beat Ali Carter. He was 7-5 down. He produced some brilliant snooker at the end there. Not dissimilar to the way Ronnie played against Dill Robertson. But, of course, because he's not Ronnie, he didn't really get, he didn't really get applauded. So the plaudits. The, the big story there was he was the oldest ever winner, right? But the way he played, I'll commentate on that, the way he played in that final was brilliant. And it's, it's evidence of what he can do when he
1: starts scoring. <clears throat> you know, I want to go back to what you said about Judd Trump being on his back, about not winning the, the correct tournaments and making these so-called triple crown events the be-all and end-all. Bingham won that Masters just after Ding had won the UK Championship, and there was no real form before or after for either of them, and yet they played superbly that week, or in Ding's case, that fortnight, and won the event, so good luck to them. I agree with you, I thought he played brilliantly to win it. And it's very important, actually, talking about the, the interpersonal dynamic, dynamic between Wilson and Bingham, because, of course, in the quarter-final in 2020, Bingham beat Wilson. 6-4. Having said that, though, Wilson does lead 4-2 <laughs> in career head-to-heads, and he beat Bingham 13-10 in the last 16 of the World Championship in 2017. If you can beat Bingham at the Crucible, you can beat him anywhere. I would make Wilson quite a, a warm favourite, but not a certainty.
0: Well, Stuart got to the semis last year. I mean, he got within a frame of the final again. He lost 6-5 to ambingtown Um I'm actually going to go for Bingham there. For some reason, I think for years he didn't couldn't do anything in the Masters then suddenly he he, he found form and of course it must almost feel like he's going back there as defending champion in a way because we haven't played there for two years I think the good memories will come back Nothing against Kyron He's a fantastic player But I'm just going to favour Bingham there Um, Yeah I think that's that's, That could be a really good match It's maybe not the one That stood out When when the draw came in But I think that could be Real high quality Because Kyron is a great scorer Of course that could have been The world final They got to the semis And at one point looked like they might Both come through Uh, They didn't But anyway We'll be seeing them next week So we've got two matches to go uh, Sean Murphy, Barry Hawkins, two players that sort of kind of out of form. I know Barry did well at the UK, but uh, obviously Sean uh, lost first round there and didn't quite even qualify for the World Grand Prix. So, you know, th- that could be a case of if, if he were to do well there, uh, proving our point really that, that the form book isn't always the be on on end all.
1: Well, Sean's struggling quite clearly. I think it's pretty much the case that he will pop back into form. It's just a matter of when. He's had physical issues as well, of mm. course. I think with Hawkins, what happened at the UK Championship was almost unprecedented. He got to the semi-final and he didn't play well to do so. And he left York really low on confidence. Now, when you get to a UK Championship semi-final, it should be a good thing. It should be a a real positive. And I don't think it was for him. Uh, So I would make that match one of the toughest to call, not because both are playing well, but both, I think, in different ways are finding it difficult. I would make Hawkins a slight favourite.
0: It's one of those... I can't, yeah, it's hard to have an opinion on, really. I, I kind of slightly favour for Sean Murphy, but on what basis, I don't know, really, because he's a former winner. I mean, when he won it... I remember he played Neil Robertson in the final, and I think at the start of the day, everyone said, oh, this would be great, It's gonna be close, you know, 10 either way.
1: 10-2 he won. <laughs> just uh, incredible, really. And, of course, Murphy is a, a triple crown winner. He's won the UK Championship, and he's won the, the World Championship as well. He's one of those players... I think he's a lot like Mark Allen, actually, Um, who was a good friend of his. When they're playing well, you think, how do these guys lose? But, of course, they do on a a regular basis. With form, you can never tell when it's going to come back. Just a slight technical tweak or a little bit of confidence here or there that you might garner from whatever. And the whole perspective on the game can change. I think his form will return in the second half of the season. It's just a matter of when and it's also a matter and we don't know the circumstances here of just how much pain he's in with his back and his shoulder. Okay, and finally, it's Mark Selby against Steve Maguire.
0: Selby, early on in his career, seemed to dominate the Masters, won it three times, not won it for nine years. Maguire beat him in the first round last year. Um, Steve Maguire, he, you know, he's never won the Masters, never been in the final but he, he, he often plays well there. So that is another, I think, tough
1: one to call. It is, absolutely. What I will say is that we don't know how um, Selby's going to fare for the rest of the week in the Championship League, but we've seen him in Group 3. Started off very slowly, but towards the end of the group, he was queuing beautifully, making lots of big breaks. I think he's going to run into form at just the right time there. And I'm a great believer in the law of averages. He's not had the best of seasons in terms of picking up silverware yet, but you know, it's only a matter of time before he's going to do it. He relishes the Masters, he relishes the big stage, he relishes big pressure and I think he could have a really good tournament. In fact, I'm going to pick him out as my pick to win the whole thing, so I do think he'll come through that first round. Well,
0: I was going to do the same, I might have to change my opinion now. Yeah, I I think everything you say there is true, the kind of Lord of Averages thing I agree with, he's going to come good and Selby, from talking to Mark actually just yesterday, he very much does buy into the Triple Crown thing, he regards those three he actually said you're talking about obviously no one wants to get COVID at any time but he said you you really don't want to get it before one of those three events because it's a massive blow to have to sit them out because Trump and, and Lazaz get to miss the Masters last year but I mean it's one of those where you could also quite comfortably see him losing to Maguire because Maguire you know he makes it a match for anybody absolutely
1: look we all know that when Stephen Maguire plays well he's sensational so that's the thing about the Masters it is the ultimate bookmaker's friend, you look at those eight matches, you can't pick out one of them really with any great certainty, let alone do a a treble or an accumulator. It's so difficult to predict. Not just who's going to win it or who's going to do well, but match by match it's so difficult and that's another example. But you have to say, on the balance of probability, Selby is favourite. Okay, well I'll just run down our picks then. We've both gone for Mark
0: Williams. I went for Xing Tong, you went for John Higgins. We've both gone for Neil Robertson, we've both gone for Ronnie O'Sullivan. I went for Mark Allen, you went for Judd Trump. I went for Stuart Bingham, you went for Karen Wilson. I went for Sean Murphy, you went for Barry Hawkins. We've both gone for Mark Selby. You're tipping Selby for the title. I'm going to, in that case, I'm going to, to avoid repetition, I'm going to go to the top half. Neil Robertson, I think, could possibly, having lost that final, I could see him bouncing back. He's playing well in general. Uh, I think it's not the worst draw, to be honest, in the first round for him. The section he's in is, is brutal, but it's all brutal. It's the Masters, of course it is. So maybe a Robertson-Selby
1: final, that could be a compromise. Um, that would be acceptable, wouldn't it? Honestly, Dave, I'm not saying this after you've said it. I really did think my choice of the two players to win it was going to be either Selby or Robertson. So great minds think alike. But here's the thing, though. Selby at the moment can't beat Robertson, can he? He's lost, like, five in a row to him or something. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and the Robertson... Uh, semi-final at the World Grand Prix was very illuminating. Yeah, I mean look, there's going to be a lot of water under the bridge. The only negative about the Masters, and I've got to get this in, is the fact that because of TV requirements, early on in the tournament, a lot of the very best matches are being played in the afternoons uh, when people are at work. It's a real shame that, because people want to see the top stars at night, but it's not possible on BBC because of their schedules. I wish that could change in the future, but we all understand how TV works. So if you are off in the afternoons, that's the, the time to see the really, the really good stuff. But of course, the stuff at the evenings, you know, that's equally quality. It's just a matter of, I suppose, name recognisability in the afternoons.
0: Yeah, well, as you say, it's live on the BBC and Eurosport and various other platforms around the world. Hopefully everyone enjoys the tournament and we'll see how, it'll uh, be fascinating to see how it all Transpires, particularly with the crowd there as well. It would be, be great to, to be back at Alexandra Palace. Uh, meantime, we're proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcasts. And uh, you can email us, slucasinpodcast at mail.com. That's slucasinpodcast at mail.com. And you can laugh at our predictions, which are almost certain to, to, go, to go south. Phil, thank you, and uh, we'll be back next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.